there in Jonah chapter 4. Um, we're going to be looking at verse 2 this morning. Um, and so but I'm going to read verse 1 and 2. But our focal point is going to be verse 2 as we look to this. And I think what happens is this so often that we only think of Jonah is a book of a man who survived three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. And then he was, you know, vomited out on land. And of course, that's a perfect understanding of, you know, Jesus Christ. He said, hey, you know, man, just you want a sign? No, no sign shall be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah, who was three days and three nights in the heart of the, in the belly of the fish. And he says, and as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He said, that's going to be the sign you're going to receive. However, I want to share with you, don't, don't turn there, but I just want to share with you that in that same passage in Matthew chapter 12, where he said in verse 40, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He then immediately declares this statement in verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. See, we have a tendency of only thinking of Jonah as the story of the man who was there three days and three nights in the, the belly of that fish. However, it's also a story of the discovery that this prophet has now has this understanding that God loves the world. God so loves the world. His mind is blown by this. And so it's really an understanding of this prophet discovering what God actually called the ministry of Israel to be. So think about this in one sense, that Jonah is a type, as always, don't, don't ever think that this is not, that Jonah is a type of Jesus Christ there in the grave. We know that. But Jonah is also a type of the nation of Israel. I don't want you to miss that. And that's what we're going to look at here this morning. That yes, Jonah was a type of Christ, but Jonah in the larger sense, and that, that one you know, little chapter where he's you know, swallowed by the fish and vomited out, that's, yeah, he's a sign of Christ. But there's three more chapters than that. But within that, we see that Jonah here is this type of the nation of Israel. Two verses I want you to just jot down, understand. The first is found in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6. And I want to just read this to you because it, it declares what God really wanted Israel to be. He says this, Isaiah 42, verse 6, And I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles. Notice what God was saying to Israel. Oh, I'm covenanting with you. I love you. You're going to be my own spirit. I'm going to take you by the hand. And as I take you by the hand, this is what you need to be. I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant to the people. What is God doing to Israel? He says, I'm giving you. I made a covenant with you, but I'm giving you as a covenant to the rest of the world. You here, Israel, have a purpose. You, Israel, are going to be, and it says at the end of verse 6 of Isaiah 42, you will be a light to the Gentile to open the blind eyes to bring prisoners out of the prison who sit in the darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory. I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. God has said, this is your role, Israel. This is your role. You are called to be a light unto the Gentiles. There's another passage that we looked at, and I want to just read it to you. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, God makes this statement to the nation of Israel. I'm going to back up and read verse 5, but the key is going to be verse 6. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people, for all the earth is mine. He says, 
You walk in my ways. You be this light. You be what I've called you to be. You're going to be this special treasure. I'm going to pour my blessings upon you. But in verse 6, he says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. He said, you need to, Moses, tell the children of Israel that they are not simply to be a kingdom, but they're to be a kingdom of priests. They're to be a whole kingdom that holds on to the Gentiles' hands, holds on to God's hands, and then put their hands together. Come, be a part of this amazing covenant that we have with God. This is the role that Israel was supposed to Take. This is the role that Israel was supposed to have. And what we see here through Jonah as a type of Israel, that Jonah says what? Well, I understand, Lord, grace for me, but not for thee. It's so important that we say, I want to be a partaker of your mercy. I want to be okay with the grace that you bestowed upon me, but let not them because they don't deserve it. It's amazing how we, in our finite minds, want to dictate to God who has an infinite mind. And as we learned last week that we should all be judged, but yet Esau I've hated. But what? Jacob I've loved. There's certain ones that God says, I'm going to show my grace and I'm going to show who I am. And I'm going to redeem this people. And to be honest with you, I don't know why God would choose to redeem the Ninevites. I would have said, like Jonah, just light the fuse. 40 days destruction. And I would have sat on the edge and watched the fuse get smaller and smaller and smaller and just wait for boom. That's what I was waiting for. And all of a sudden, it was sort of like one of those clown bombs instead. It wasn't the, the fuses lit and Boom, there's destruction, but the fuse is lit and boom, out comes flowers. Out comes life. Out comes love and grace. And it's one of those things that we don't fully understand how that happens or why that happens, but this is what God is doing. Now, Jonah had no problem being a recipient of the mercies of God when God says, listen, you need to go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, I'm going to go to Tarshish. I want to go down to Tarshish, not over to Nineveh. And so he goes the opposite way, and God does allow that storm to come. The mariners throw him overboard. He allows Jonah not to die in the waves, but this great fish swallows him, swims three days, you know, vomits him out on the dry land, and he makes his way back to Nineveh. I want to share with you a passage, and I think this is going to be a little bit illuminating, but go in your Bibles, back it up to 1 Kings chapter 13. The reason I want you to look at this, because what we're going to see is this. In 1 Kings chapter 13, if you're familiar with the passage, it's judgment on a disobedient prophet. Not mercy, which Jonah had, but judgment. In 1 Kings chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, it says, And behold, a man of God went from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. So... A prophet of God comes from Judah, southern area, to Bethel, which is now the northern tribes where Jeroboam is there because now the ten tribes are split from the southern tribes. So Rehoboam is in the southern tribes. Jeroboam is in the northern. Verse 2, he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child Josiah by name shall be born in the house of David, and on you he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places who burn incense on you and men's bones shall be burned on you. So here he makes this prophecy that there's going to be this, this king coming Josiah by name and he's going to burn these, the, the, the bones of these priests on those altars. Well, in verse 3, he gave a sign that same day saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard that saying, 
of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel that he stretched out his hand from the altar saying, arrest him. And then his hand, which he stretched out towards him, withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. The altar was also split apart and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Then the king answered and said to the man of God, please entreat the favor of the Lord your God. Now, notice, not the Lord our God. He says the Lord your God. And pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. Then the king said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread, nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord saying, you shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. So notice that God had given to this prophet a word. You go and you speak against the altar. You go and you speak boldly my word. And then don't stick around. Don't stick around. You don't eat bread. You don't drink water. And you don't come back the same way you went. Come back another way. Now, here's the prophet. And notice the prophet was incredibly obedient to this point. And as he was obedient, he went and he spoke against the prophet. And then as the king's hand was there, he, it was withered. He restored the hand. A little bit extra added bonus of just me being here. Grace of God. And it's interesting that he bestows the grace of God on the king, and the king wants to bestow grace upon him. Come, I want you to eat bread. I want to give you words. He says, I can't. I can't do that. Well, in verse 10, so he went another way and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. So, so far, so good. Now, verse 11, and now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works of the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words which he'd spoke to the king, and their father said to him, which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went who came from Judah. Then he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled a donkey for him, and he rode it, and he went after the man of God, and he found him sitting under an oak. Then he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. And he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I cannot return with you, nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the going, by going the way you came. Now, he's very open. He's very honest. And he says to this old prophet, I can't. I'd, I'd like to, but I can't. Well, this old prophet, verse 18, said to him, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink wine. He was lying to him. Now, I'm... I'm Honestly, you have this prophet. He's now saying, well, God sent an angel and said something different. Why don't you come? So verse 19, he went back with him and he ate his bread in his house and he drank water. He said, well, if an angel told you, well, I'm not going to, you know, make an angel mad. So verse 20, now it happened as they sat at the table. The word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. Now the prophet hears the word of God. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you came back and ate bread and drank water in the place which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your corpse will not come to the tomb of your fathers. And so it was when he'd eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him and the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown on the road and the donkey stood by it. And the lion also stood by the corpse. So notice what this lion does. He just kills the prophet, doesn't kill the donkey, and he just stands there. It was just a judgment of God. Why? Because this prophet was disobedient. And he said, don't do it. The prophet did it. Even though he was deceived in doing it, 
the very judgment of God came upon this prophet. And you, what, what did he do wrong? I mean, he, he really wasn't his fault. It was still what? Disobedience. And it was still judgment. Well, as we see this, as we see the lion is standing by the corpse in verse 24, verse 25 says, then, and there men passed by, saw the corpse thrown on the road and the lion standing by the corpse. And they went and they told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. And now when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard it, he said, it is the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. Now, this is incredible. Here, this old guy that sees this new prophet, he gets away scot-free. He lies and this prophet dies. He says, well, don't, don't worry, I want to be buried with him when I die. That, I, that's the least I could do. But think about this. Think about how God judged that prophet. And now think about another prophet by the name of Jonah. Jonah was not deceived. Jonah was not beguiled by another prophet. Where Jonah says, oh yeah, I'm going to go, go to, to Nineveh. I'll, I'll be right on my way. Another prophet says, oh wait, an angel said, go to Tarshish. No, there was no deception. He was just flat out disobedient. And yet the mercies of God came to Jonah. And so I wanted you to see here, and I think it's so important for us to grab a hold of certain truths in the scripture. That here Jonah has been a recipient of mercy, and yet he wants the Ninevites to be a recipient of what? Judgment. God, deal with them. 40 days, light the fuse. Here's the bomb. He just can't wait. You know, I could just see him there up on that hill watching the fuse get smaller and smaller and smaller. And like, soon, soon, soon. And then grace. Grace comes. There's a passage in Matthew chapter 18, and you should be aware of this. And I want to just take you to it here this morning. Because in Matthew chapter 18, there's this beautiful passage where Peter here is trying to figure out what it is to, you know, be merciful, what it is to forgive someone. And what happens is this. It begins in Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he'd begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had in payment be made. So he owed basically about $15 million. $15 million is what he owes. And he goes, be patient with me. All right, how patient does someone need to be if you're going to pay back $15 million. I mean, how it's just not going to happen unless you can be patient for about 500 lifetimes. But now what happens is this, something amazing. Verse 26 says, The servant fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Mercy. Just mercy. Oh, forgiven. The debt is forgiven. But what does he do? Well, it says here in verse 28 that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, basically three months worth of work. That's it. Not 500 lifetimes, three months worth of work. A denarii is basically, you know, you get a denarii for every day that you work. And what he does is this. He finds this fellow servant, not, not a master-servant relationship, but a servant-servant relationship, a fellow-servant relationship. And it says this, he laid hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. Here's someone that has been an incredible recipient of mercy that you couldn't even fathom. And he goes and he demands judgment. And so he takes this one man, and after he says, pay me what you owe, his fellow servant fell down at his feet, begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. The same word that that man had said to his master. And what does he do? 
In verse 30 says, he would not, but he went and he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Absolutely incredible to see here how someone can be a recipient of mercy and yet demand judgment. And I think something that we need to learn and something we need to grow is this, that God, when he spoke through Jonah, did something unique. Remember what he says when Jonah walks through the city there in chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began to enter the city on the day's first walk. And then he cried out and said, yet 40 days. Do you understand? 40 days. I'm giving you time. 40 in the scripture is the number of testing. It's the number of um, sometimes judgment. But 40 is that testing. And so we see here that he now, in incredible grace, says, you get 40 days before I'm going to do anything. And amazingly here, the Ninevites respond with what? Repentance. Repentance. Two passages that I want to share with you because it, it holds true with, with Jonah, holds true with the Ninevites. Daniel 9, 9, just jot it down. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. And this is so true. Although we are rebellious, although we deserve the punishment, God, mercy, continually. In the book of James, chapter 2, verse 13, it says... For judgment without mercy is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's so important to realize that mercy is the triumphant thing. Over justice, over judgment, mercy triumphs. And I think it's important for us to recognize just really what it is. That the Ninevites now come to this place to say, Oh my goodness, I want to stop what I'm doing because I believe this is the word of God. Although it wasn't their God, there were idol worshipers. Jonah comes and says, his God, he just says 40 days, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. They respond in such a powerful way. Let me share with you a passage found in Jeremiah chapter 18. Beginning in verse 1, going all the way to verse 10. And you guys know it as that passage dealing with the potter. Because Jeremiah, as it says in Jeremiah 18, verse 1, the word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. And I went down to the potter's house, and there was making something at the wheel. And the vessel which that had... And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel. Now it's interesting that here he's making a vessel and he sees a flaw in it. Now what he doesn't do is crunch it up and throw it against the wall and say, get me another piece. He doesn't judge it. Do you understand? But what in mercy he does this, he breaks it back down. He said, I got to take this flaw out and I'm going to crush you a little bit. I'm going to break you back down. And so what he does is he made it again into another vessel as seemed good to him. And so what is God showing? Then the word of the Lord came to me. Oh, house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Can't I remake you? Can't I have mercy on you? And God says to Israel, you're flawed but don't worry, I'm not destroying you yet. You're, you're still supple. You're, your heart is still soft where I can remold you and remake you. Now in a couple more chapters in Jeremiah, now he sees a hardened piece of clay that is flawed and there's nothing you can do but what? Just throw it out into the path and let it get busted. Let it just be shards now. Let it be a part of a path. And so we're seeing here that God says to Israel, this is what I'm doing to you. I'm remaking you. Verse 7, the instance I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck it up and to pull it down and destroy it. God says, I can choose to destroy any nation. I will declare to that nation, I will destroy it. If that nation against whom I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster which I thought to bring upon it. And the instant that I speak concerning a nation and a kingdom to build it and to plant it, 
If it does evil in my sight, so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I said I would benefit it. So God says, if I choose to destroy a nation and yet it repents, I, in my grace, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. Now, incredible. Now, think about this. God gives to Jonah a message and says, 40 days. I'm going to ask you a question to see if you can remember this. How many days did Sodom and Gomorrah get to repent? Nada. Zip. Zero. The only thing that happened with them is what? Lot, I got to get you out. You get out, then comes destruction. There was no 40 days. It wasn't like Lot saying, hey, bye guys, I'm leaving 40 days and then you're destroyed. No, there was no, no, no warning for them. They were too far gone. And it's amazing that what God is doing with Nineveh is this. Just the very fact that he gives them 40 days. That he could have just simply said, you know, Jonah, tell them it's coming. Fire and brimstone. Tell them, call yourself Sodom. Call yourself Gomorrah. But he doesn't. He says, you got 40 days. And in that 40 days, in that amazing grace that their hearts are changed, so to the fact that they now come to a place of repentance. Notice what happens when Jonah gives them 40 days before it overthrows. In Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God. Not a word of man, but as it was a word of the Lord, they believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. Everyone. There was none that said, well, I'm better than this. No, maybe you guys need it. No, the entire city came to the point of repentance. Even the king. The king would have it, and he would make a decree, says, listen, we're not eating, we're not drinking. You can't even feed your animals. If you have a pet hamster, no food, no water until we're done here. You can't feed your cows or your sheep or anything. We're not eating, we're not drinking. He says in verse 7, there of Jonah chapter 3, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything do not let them eat or drink water. But in verse 8, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let every man turn from his evil ways and turn from the violence that is in his hands. He says, repent, turn. And I find that amazing that here, God goes to the city Nineveh and says, I just want to give you some time. You, you have 40 days. I want to give you some time. There's that passage, if you're familiar with it, in Luke chapter 13. Jesus gives this beautiful parable. And I want to read it to you because in verse 6 of Luke chapter 13, I'm going to all, read all the way down to verse 9. But it makes this, this statement. It says in verse, Luke 13, verse Six, he also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. So here's a man. He comes to his vineyard. He's seeking fruit, and he found none. In verse 7, the, he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none cut it down, why does it use up the ground? Now, makes sense, right? I mean, if you were there planting a crop and for three years you had nothing, would you plant it a fourth year? No, most of us wouldn't even plant it the second year. If it doesn't work, it's like, you're, you're broke. I'm not going to work with you anymore. For three years, he comes expecting it to have fruit. For three years, it doesn't. He tells the, 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 the vine keeper, he says, just cut it down. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But in verse 8, notice the response. He answers, said, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it, and if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. In other words, you can tell me, and I will cut it down. But understand this mercy that comes. How often do we look at people's lives 
that we, can, that we see as an enemy. And we say, you know what, you bear no fruit. I've, I've known you for years and you've not been any, bear any fruit. And so we tell God, cut them down. Don't we? We tell God, you judge them. And I find that so amazing how we in our finite mind, because we're not seeing any fruit, we're telling God, God, chop them down. God, cut them off. God, judge them. And yet God says, hang on a second. I want to dig it around it for another year. And it's amazing how the mercies of God have that tendency to just truly draw back. Now, we see people very much so as enemies. And I want to read to you two passages dealing with how we see people as enemies, both found in the book of Matthew or the book of Luke chapter 6. And in Luke chapter 6, he makes this statement. I'm going to read verse 27 and I'm going to read verse 35. But in Luke 6, 27, he makes this statement. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. In verse 20, he says, bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. Now, this is not our normal mindset. He says, not only love your neighbor, but here Jesus says, love your enemy. Now, if you and I were Jonah, he would say what? Love the Ninevites. That's what he's saying. Love them. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Now, in verse 35 of Luke 6, he goes on and says, but love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and the evil. Oh my goodness, isn't that who we usually think of the enemies? The, the unthankful and the evil, you are an enemy of God and thus you're my enemy. And I found it interesting that out of all the Psalms that we would be in while we here are looking at this passage in Jonah, that this morning our Psalm reading would be Psalm 101. And that the very first verse in Psalm 101 is this, I will sing of your mercy and justice. Now he's saying of your mercy to me and your justice to thee. Your mercy's on me, but your justice goes to all those. Remember what he said um, at the end of it in verse 8. He said, I will early, I will destroy all the wicked of the land that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. How do you know which are the evil? How do you know which ones are the right ones? And I find it interesting that he begins the psalm out of all psalms that we could be looking at. He begins it, I will sing of your mercy and justice. I think, God, you are so smart. You are so wise. It's so amazing that you would bring us to this psalm as we're in this passage. So as we see here, as God goes to Nineveh, he gives them 40 days. 40 days. And what we see is this, as they come to the place of repentance, verse 10 makes this statement, and I'm going to be reading verse 10 of Jonah chapter 3. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Why? Well, Jeremiah 18, God said that he would. He said that he could. But then we see here in verse 1 of chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and says, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I prayed fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. And I know this is who you are. Why? Because I've been a partaker of it myself. But I didn't want you to do it to them. Don't you understand, Lord? They're not me. See, I'm going to be so beneficial to you because, oh, wait, I disobey you. <laughs> Yet you, I have your grace. 
But who are they? They're Ninevites. And how many times do we look to people, do we look to these ones that we think are what? The unworthy. You don't deserve what we have. You don't deserve what I get. You don't deserve this mercy. And how often do we look to, you know, the the drug dealers? How often do we look to the people who, you know, break in and, and steal, you know, break into your garage, break into your car? How do we often do we look at those people and we say, they need to be judged, Lord. They need to be judged. I'll tell you what. May we have the heart to say, not God judge them, but God show them your mercy. Why? Because you are kind to the unthankful and the evil. This is your heart. You you are not willing that any should perish. And I think it's so important that what God is and what Jonah is trying to determine and figure out is this. God is a God of life. Not a God of death. He's a God of life. And I, I think it's so important because, you know, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He wanted that for Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, don't eat of this tree because in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. See, God is the God of life. He's always been a God of life. There's a passage found in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Let me read it to you. If you want, you can turn there. I'll be there for a few verses. But in Deuteronomy chapter 30, beginning in verse 11, I'm going to read all the way down to verse 19. It declares this, For the commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us? that we may hear it and do it, nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. He said, what I'm going to tell you now isn't something just that you should say, it's too far for me, it's beyond my reach. What I'm telling you is something you can actually do. Verse 15, see, I've set before you today, life and good, death and evil. I love God. He says, I'm setting before you life and death. I'm setting before you good and evil. Now I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and the statutes of judgment, that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and you worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish and you shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over in the Jordan in which you go to possess. I call heaven and earth as a witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. So God says, listen, I'm going to share with you a multiple choice. Now, not A, B, and C, just A and B. And then just in case you're confused, he says, just turn to the book and I'll give you the answer. I'm going to tell you which one to choose. I'm setting life and I'm setting death. God is a God of life. And how often do we as Christians look at other people that we would determine them as Ninevites and say, you deserve death. See, God isn't a God of death. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and I think once we grasp that truth of who God is and how God works, that we begin to see, yes, God, you are a God of life. Remember Jesus there in John chapter 11 when, when his friend Lazarus had died? He said, listen, I'm going to tell you that he's going to rise. Oh, I know in the last day he'll rise. No, 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 no. If you believe in me, you will never die. All, all, who, all who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Oh, Lord, I believe. It's absolutely amazing that in Jesus Christ, when you believe in him, you have life. And I'll tell you what, rather than telling people of death, tell people of your life. Why? Because I deserved that life. I was one of those who should have been 
Esau I have hated, but instead I'm Jacob I have loved. Why? It's just God's grace. And now listen, I'm not doing a series on this. It just happens to be where we are in the scripture. But what an amazing series to be, to look to these truths and to look to the heart. Because as God begins to show us that we don't deserve it, yet he poured out his grace, he's saying to others, be careful that you don't judge others worthy of death because God is not willing that they should. There's a passage in the book of Isaiah. Let me read it to you. Found in Isaiah chapter um, 54. Isaiah 54, beginning in verse 22, makes this statement. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. <laughs> the same book that he tells Israel, listen, Israel, I want to tell you who you are. You're going to be a light to the Gentiles. And what you need to do is tell the whole world, look to me and be saved. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. That's everyone. Look to God and to be saved. I think this is so the heart of God that you and I need to grasp that. You and I need to hold on to that. There's a passage where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Let me read you a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19 through 21. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So think about this for just a moment. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses, not, not saying you're all guilty, and he has committed to us He's given to us this word of reconciliation. And then in verse 20, Paul says this to the church in Corinth. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is our heart. Don't be like the nation Israel who was supposed to be a light in the kingdom of priests saying be reconciled to God, be reconciled to God. What we need to be is this, not those who point and say you deserve judgment, but to let them know I deserved judgment and yet I was a recipient of God's mercy and grace. I have been reconciled to God through the person and the work of my God, my Lord, my Savior, Jesus Christ, and I am his. And as we proclaim this, he says in verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. I'm righteous before God because of Christ taking my sin. This is the word of reconciliation. You and I are ambassadors. We are Jonah's sent to Nineveh. And it's not just saying, listen, understand, he's making a statement. God's a holy God, and you failed miserably. But the key is this, God's a holy God and I failed miserably. I don't deserve this grace. I don't deserve this mercy. I don't deserve what I have. I deserve for what? A lion to come and kill me and stand next to me and my donkey. I deserve the death of the prophet because I've been disobedient to God. Now it's a truth that disobedience brings judgment but all of a sudden know this, that God can choose to say, I want to spare you. And who are we to say that you're not worthy of being spared? God shouldn't spare you. I'll tell you what, before I came to know the Lord, there were many Christians. And I kid you not, there was one guy, one guy, he was a boss of mine. I would walk by and he would do this. He would literally do the sign of the cross whether he thought I was demonic or what, he was just terrified of me. And, and I'll tell you, he, he would have said, judgment, Lord. I, I'm sure that every day he prayed, God, take him away. Just, just, just take him away. And yet God says, I got a plan for his life. Don't, don't you worry about it. I got a plan for his life. 
And this is so amazing when we come to this greater understanding of who God is and what he declares. Now, Paul would also say to Timothy, let me give you just two verses. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, he makes a statement, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He will also say, as, as Peter would write in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is the heart of God. The heart of God is that, that none should perish. Do you know that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked? He does not take pleasure. He desires that all men would come into this incredible relationship. And so what does God do? He tells Jonah, give them 40 days. Give them 40. It's a time of testing. I need to, for you to let them know they have some time to decide. But there's a limited amount of time. And I think it's important for us to tell people, you need to make a decision that God sets before you as he set before me life and death. But he wants you as he, he bid me choose life that you may live. That you could then become ambassadors to tell others who are fellow Ninevites, come and be reconciled. Come and, and truly have a part of repentance so that, that, that you can change who you are, change direction, and come and follow God. When we begin to look to this, and I think it's so important that here Jonah is angry because God is merciful. But the problem is he wasn't so angry when God was merciful with him. And I think this is where we need to grasp a truth that the same mercy that was bestowed upon us, which we did not deserve, but we are recipients anyways, is the same mercy that he wants to give others. Because the reason is, you and I don't know who's going to be what? Who's going to be called by God? That he says, I just want you to become ambassadors. Tell the world of my goodness. Tell the world of my love for them. Tell them of my, of my mercy, which I, I showed to you and the grace that I bestowed upon you. Tell them of my son. May we be those ambassadors that when God in his mercy chooses not to condemn others, chooses not to go and to wipe them out, that we can say, rather than God, would you judge them for their wickedness? Would you judge them for their unthankfulness? We can say, God, would you bless them with your love? Would you bless them with your grace? Would you allow me to become an ambassador to tell them of Jesus Christ? You have to understand that, that Jonah here is going to grasp a huge truth. It's the truth that you and I need to be re-reminded of, especially in this day and age. Because there is going to be a greater and greater divide. I hate to say it, just in this world. Know this, there's a road that goes to God. It's a very narrow road, a very narrow gate. And there's a wide road, a wide gate that leads to destruction. Many who are on the one, very few are on the narrow. So we're a small group going to God. There's a wide group running to destruction and what we want to do is say, not see you later, not, oh, I'm watching the fuse. I can't wait for you to fall down into hell and be screaming with all the rest. I want you to turn and come and be saved. Join me on this narrow road. Would we have that heart to seek to save the lost as Jesus? He's not worried about the 99 who are already saved, but he'll go out and he'll find the one and he'll do everything he can to find the one. And, and rather than us rejoicing, waiting because the fuse is lit and boom, now you got what you deserve. Know this. I got the clown bomb. I did. The fuse went and it went boom. And it was flowers. It was grace. It was mercy. It was love. And I'm so grateful for that. May, may we be those who say, you know what, you may not deserve this. And, and you, I would say, are my enemy. And David would say, you're an enemy, that you are unthankful, you are, you are evil. But you know what? You're loved by God. I don't, I don't care who you are now. I can tell you this. You're loved by God. 
And there's not one person that you can talk to. There's not one person that you run into that isn't loved by God. Become that ambassador. Tell them, be reconciled to God through Christ. It's a simple message. It's not a message that's too far off where you can't get it. It's a pretty simple message. God gave me a choice between life and death. I chose life. He gave you a choice between life and death. You chose life. And we want to give others that same choice. But understand, the life is in the Son. He is the resurrection and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. Only through Christ is there life. No other way. You can't circumvent God's plan. There is a plan. It's an amazing plan, but it's the only plan that's out there. You can't make another one. It's just you can't do that. Why? Because we are all those who owe our master $15 million. Talents that are going to take 500 lifetimes to pay off. But yet, mercy. Just mercy. So don't look to the ones that owe you a pittance and grab them by the throat saying, you need judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen? Well, Father, we do thank you for this word that you've given to us this morning. Thank you for your heart. You are so gracious. You are so good. And Lord, we want to be those who learn this truth. We know that you are a gracious and merciful God. We know that you are slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. We know this is who you are, that you relent from doing harm. God, how do we know that? Because we're recipients of this truth. We've all experienced it. So help us, help us, Lord. Not to be bummed when others come into the same grace, but to rejoice. It's amazing that Jonah here is a preacher and the people respond and he's angry. Lord, if people respond to this message, I promise you I will not be angry. I promise you I will rejoice and worship that we would become people who who declare your love, who declare your life that you've set before them choices, Lord. Change our hearts towards those who we would call enemies, Lord. Change our hearts into one that we would love them and that they too, through your mercy, through your grace, could become fellow children of God. We ask this in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen.